I'm low-key, a hip-hop artist, political campaigner, and historian. And I, for me, believe that hip-hop is the greatest equalizer in artistic terms that we have. It allows the poorest person to speak to the richest person. It allows people to reach beyond isolation in major ways and it gives us real space to articulate a lot of things that afflict us in our society today this is radio freedom if you don't stand up for something you'll fall for anything come on listen listen planet earth planet rap planet earth planet rap The only segment showing station in the hip hop world playing the hip hop world. In the hip hop world playing the hip hop world. With Nico and I'm Welcome to PEPR, Planet Earth, Planet Rap, Virtual World Tour Conversation Series. My name is Amgelo and beginning Kapanen. Yes, and my name is Nico. Really good to have you with us. I know there's a tons of stuff online everywhere where that you could be listening to, watching or reading and all that stuff and you're here now listening to us and this is this is really great it doesn't escape us how cool it is that you are you are listening to this thing at the moment indeed indeed so we've been having this conversation with these artists from all over the world and um it's been a wonderful time getting to know the person behind the persona and 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 in this uh particular series we're trying to get some insight into some of the work that we've been playing on PEPR so it's a grand opportunity I was really thinking about it this week. This is like a, this is like an online course if you want to look at it that way. Like if you wanted to have like a one term uh, for for an online course of, of the world of hip hop. What are the different factors? What are the different influences? All this different stuff. You know, you can get to know from 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 these interviews. I think there's a lot of very interesting things about culture and industry and and art and identity. Yes, and we've had opportunities to speak to so many different people from all over the world, South Africa, Brazil, um, Malaysia, Malaysia, Singapore, Singapore yes, mm. yes, yes, and uh, now Zimbabwe, the, Lisbon, Portugal. And now our next guest is from the UK, yes? Absolutely, he is from the UK, from London, UK, and also he's representing Iraq, he is low-key great artist, like really a great artist who's also become an interesting and important political commentator, commentator, a journalist, all sorts. He's, 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 he's doing it all. Absolutely. We've been playing low-key since the early noughties, I think. Um, in fact, you know what? We've known of his work since the early noughties and we've been playing his work since the beginning of PEPR, Planet Earth, Planet Rap. So it's such a joy to be able to finally sit down with him and communicate and converse and catch up on what has been happening in his life. Some of these artists or most of the artists, they go through so many different changes, right? And they crow. They crow because when what we've been doing this show for 11 years i mean imagine 11 years in even in our life we were different people when we started this but let alone artists who's expressing in their feelings and talking about their lives talking about what's happening it's a very different thing that is happening when you are like uh, 25 to when you are you you know 36 there's a huge gap there or like a lot of lot of stuff happens yeah so it's very interesting and it will be very interesting for you to hear what these artists themselves have to say and what low key has to say 
Absolutely. So thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. For us, it was a real great privilege to have Loki here. And, and as it has been with all these interviews, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the support. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because oftentimes, right, we know the art, we know the work, we know the the, the the work speaks for itself, and people are interacting with the work. They grow yeah. with it, but we never really get to know the artists themselves because not often do we get the opportunity to speak to you guys. So here we thought to ourselves, well, you know, like PPR is also like mostly about the artists and the music and the work, and less about us. So we we're like, mm. maybe it would be nice also to get a moment to talk to the artists themselves because we've been playing your work forever ever and so finally it would be nice to bring out you know like reveal you almost an yeah, unveiling it's an honor, it's an honor <laughs> honestly it really is thank you so much for the support we were just thinking I, I what i don't remember is the year but i remember i used to live in birmingham in uk and uh, there was a magazine undercover which had a undercover cuts cd that was a cd time still and there was your song let me live on one of those uh, wow. mix compilations and i don't remember the year precisely but that was the time when i was introduced to your music and then i then i bought the key to the game tree <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and la- later on, there was a, the reissue of the two as well. I don't know if the, the first wow. one was ever available. I think, uh, <laughs> I the, think we've got this yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, the, <laughs> <artifacts>. <laughs> amazing, <laughs> man. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's so long ago now. It just feels like a different lifetime. You were very young at the time. Like I you, was. Yeah. So you've been doing hip hop for incredibly long, like, all, like almost all of your life, essentially. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that at that age, I kind of jumped into it through the open mics. Um, I used to go to school and rap. I used to call into DJ 279's uh, Friday Night Flavors show on Choice FM. They had something called the 60 Second, um, either 60 Seconds of Fame, I think it was, or something like that. And you call up and rap for 60 seconds <laughs> on the now, phone if you win four weeks in a row then you get invited into the studio to rap live and i won three weeks in a row this is when i was 16 mm. i won three weeks in a row but then on the fourth week i lost um but then when i was 17 i was able to go in and and do the knights of the round table which is where you're you know it's so different to now you'd go in and rap around a table for at least an hour mm. so you're talking about you'd have to have in your head at least 20 minutes of lyrics 25 yeah. minutes of lyrics which is like if you think in terms of songs mm. that's an, that, at least an ep like uh <laughs> yeah, said, yeah. yeah. And, and 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 you know sometimes you'd freestyle a little bit and sort of react to some of the lyrics that someone had dropped and then so yeah when i was 17 i was able to go up there with swiss from uh from so solid and uh, it was quite quite the interaction between us um and yeah he was a great supporter and really it was a great loss actually that choice fm ended up getting shut down um because global who own a lot of the radio stations here they shut it down you know and choice fm as a radio station was founded following the london riots in the 80s because the british government as one of its concessions to the black community, said we will now have a quota um, of what will play on FM of a genre like soca, for example, a genre like 
um, gospel, revival, soul, reggae, um, R&B, hip hop. And so Choice FM was part of that concession. But then obviously when it was bought by global media, um, they then not long after it basically shut it down and founded in its place something called Capital Extra, which is really a... Um, you know not not a great not generally not a great station in my opinion whereas choice fm was such a formative part of my um upbringing and really was part of me falling in love with hip-hop so yeah that was an amazing time and and, and those three mixtapes were released within about a year and a half so i was um working a lot between 17 18 going to the open mic battling people battled for the name for example first time i went to the open mic and um yeah, and then things just change, you know, now in terms of when people are developing their craft, they don't have that same kind of space to develop it in that in that tried and tested sort of manner um, where you're in a room full of MCs and everyone wants the mic and you have to sort of prove yourself against these MCs. Um, it was great. Yeah, it was lovely, lovely, beautiful experience. I imagine you didn't get the chance to go to Deal Real, though, did you or did you? I, I I didn't I didn't. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was a piece of history. Honestly, it was such it a is. piece of history. It I, was, I I have yeah, heard about lot. it since, but but I, I but I never had that p- first hand experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was literally like the size of this room. But like, whenever people from the US would come, so from Kanye West, the Most Deaf, to Cannabis, to Jizza, to Dame Dash, they'd come to the store. That you know, and and people would be having ciphers outside. You know, it was such a beautiful culture. Um, but we don't, yeah, it does. It's not, it's not here anymore. You know, they lost their, I think the license in 2005, it was, um, you know, they might be an interesting, you know, the deal real legacy team. They might be interesting people to talk to, but, um, I don't know the ins and outs of, of how and why it shut down, but yeah, it shut down and was a great loss to so many people. I guess one of the differences also for that time, besides, well, everything else is that because it was all in CD format. I mean, I guess MySpace was kind of coming or it was just sort of entered, but it wasn't yet that, that it wasn't, we weren't really entered in that MP3 space. So you were also one of those people who were selling those mixtapes on the on the streets of London. I've seen, I remember seeing like some video long time ago when you were you're <laughs> ra- rapping somewhere to some some prospective buyers of, of, of CDs. And, and I remember buying mixtapes like this from other people, not from you, but from other other artists. So So basically you just sort of like, you were in London or maybe elsewhere as well and, 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 and sold the CDs from the back. Well, so what we used to do was we um, would get the CDs, go to the open mic. You know, I sold them in my school. I sold them in the barbershop um, local to me. I would go and rap at the open mic and then come out and sell them afterwards. Um, and yeah, you know, we, there was Hip Hop Connection, the magazine at that time, which you may remember. Yeah. Um, you know, to get a review in Hip Hop Connection was like brilliant. And I and I think my my ones got four, four out of five or something like that. They got good ratings generally. And it was just it meant the world to me. Um and hip hop connection was again a big part of it. It's it's funny how these things just, you know, disappeared really overnight. You know, there the, the was such a big part of my life and my sort of relationship and had such an intimate bond with me in terms of hip hop. Um, and hip hop connection kind of it cultivated a different type of knowledge of the art and the music. You know, it wasn't just about what it sounded like. It was about 
a lot of stuff around it, the personal lives, the reading for deeper meaning into the lyrics. And, and yeah, these things just disappeared uh, sort of one by one, um, but pretty quickly. Um, and then we went into the MySpace era, which was, you know, when you were trying to get as many listens as you could sort of per day on your page. Um, and really the next sort of stage where things sort of developed through MySpace was, well, 2008, I had the, uh, the sort of quote unquote super group with some of the members of Arctic Monkeys, some of the members of Baby Shambles, some of the members of Reverend the Makers, but it was quite a kind of uh, a different kind of project that a lot of people in the hip hop world would not really be tuned into or familiar with because these were indie bands. And so it put us more into the sort of enemy space. But then the MySpace started to kind of develop a listenership, particularly in 2009, ironically, you know, with the, with the Long Live Palestine song, um, you know, performing it at demonstrations, um, you know, performed it at a demonstration in front of a few hundred thousand people. And then at that time, it was really insane. 15,000 listens a day on the song, just on the MySpace, like for the next week or something. So I was like, wow, okay, something big is happening with this song. And um, yeah, and then Facebook was great. And, you know, again, Facebook kind of changed in terms of, you know, for me, in terms of use in about 2016, 2017, because it became a lot harder to reach people, you know, even though you have this fan page that you've built up it's just like there's a glass ceiling it's you're, yeah. you're no longer being able to reach people in the way you were but from sort of 2009 um to 2012 when i stopped for a bit um facebook was brilliant you know facebook was directly connecting people to whatever you were posting whenever you were posting it so you know how it is man it's uh, ups and downs <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is like that. The algorithms are 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 also and and they're not our friends either. So it's 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 very difficult to mm -hmm. kind of get through that system. Yeah, I was gonna say that you know, for me, when I came to know you, when you came into my awareness, it was through Mick when I met him. I think in two thousand two thousand and five, yeah. two thousand and five in South Africa. I'm from South Africa, Cape Town. And back then, he introduced me to your album. I think, dear listener. Yeah, that was a little bit later. That was, later that was a few years later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the first time I actually heard your work. And I thought to myself, I'm listening to Dear Listener. And it says, I'm paraphrasing, forgive if I <laughs> misquote. But it says, when I die, I want my fans to know that they all knew me. And I thought, whoa, such a high level of uh, vulnerability and so much honesty and so much openness. And, and that was before the Brene Browns of this world started giving TED Talks about the importance of vulnerability. But for you, where does that vulnerability stem from? And how did you manage to allow yourself to become so open and so vulnerable and to share so much of your story? Because story is so important. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great and interesting question um i think part of it is having you know one of my parents quite good at um expressing themselves um emotionally not that the other parent is is not great at it but I, i think it's something that doesn't come so naturally to them because of their own upbringing but i think particularly when um you know my brother died in 2004 i at first so for the first couple of days didn't think of making songs about it but making writing the song about it was such a a, a, a good experience for helping me calm down 
particular because one of the things about us um you know people that have experienced some sort of trauma in childhood physically the way their brain differs from others is that the serotonin production is impeded somewhat um and so serotonin is vital for the regulation of panic and anxiety and fear and and that's you know that is um that's not me saying that that is physically proven that serotonin production can be impeded due to traumatic experiences now for me it's like the writing of that song particularly the particular song about my brother was sort of like um serving the same kind of purpose as serotonin would because i was able to sort of you know unload this stuff and feel um just a little bit less anxious really about everything that had happened so that then i guess lends itself to the sort of importance of emotional expression and and that was quite a sort of pivotal and important time in my life however i do i do feel that it's not always the best thing to do to be that vulnerable and that open because sometimes you can say things which later on you know you don't feel like that 10 years later you know you don't know necessarily how much that openness or that that um that honesty will necessarily affect sort of other people close to you they may not want that information out in the world so you know as you get older you sort of become a little bit you know possibly at that period of my life i may have overshared actually some stuff um and and really dear listener was kind of the beginning of a move towards being less personal less open less vulnerable in terms of that side of things you know because uh you know at the same time you are throwing things out into a place where people won't necessarily be as gentle um with your scars as you hope they would be and so bearing them seems to me now at an older age not always um the the smartest course of action you know but at that young age it seemed really um a no brainer you know to share you know because i thought what else is the music for if it's not for sort of sharing you know and how i feel and also it forges connections deeper connections to your listeners that's what i thought it achieved True. you know so yeah, i think yeah. even though there's a downside to oversharing or being too vulnerable as you've just said there's also something good to be said about it because i think it sort of like allows the listener to also allow themselves to look at their own vulnerabilities and their own psychological scars and their own trauma because i mean we 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 all need each other to reflect each other to 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 be reflections to each other so for me i really thought that at that time it really served the purpose and and yeah. i was i was always delighted to actually be introduced to that work at that time and of course everything evolves you evolve we mm. all evolve but then i thought to myself i wonder okay so if you want your fans to feel like they know you and you don't remain the same person because identity who you are changes that means your listeners have to change with you mm. what is your relationship with your fan base and do you have to reintroduce yourself every time you change how does it work wow um great question again um i think that for me the the best part of doing what i've been fortunate enough to do because of circumstance you know before the internet you know with the the negatives of the sort of algorithmic side you know the ability of big business especially now to sort of reproduce its 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 own um uh, wave and pattern of 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 making money 
algorithmically now the internet aside from that the internet has you know given us an amazing way of communicating with people in a really in a really close way now for me the best part of that is going on tour and doing meet and greets after the show and selling CDs and and seeing people and i've always found it really interesting the the significance that music can take on in people's lives without you knowing you know you could make a piece of music um in your bedroom you know for instance there's a, a song of mine called um called terrorist which has you know something like five million people have heard it it seems um and you know it's one of those songs that when i'm on tour you know people sing along at the shows it's fantastic to sort of have that but for me i basically was half asleep and came up with the chorus in my bed while i was half asleep and so it's just amazing to say go to australia or, you know sydney or go to uh you know greece and and people are singing it back to you and you're thinking wow this song that was just sort of in my mind at that time is now has this significance to a person you know or for example a person will come to you after a show and say this song interacted with this particular thing i was going through in my life and it meant this to me and that's just like wow you know i can't i couldn't i i couldn't ask for more um in that situation so for me yeah those those sort of connections with people you know i guess the truth is is that those aspects of your identity of when you're making those songs you know they are a reflection of still you a part of you you know it may not be something you choose to identify with very closely now it may not be something that you really want to emphasize about yourself but it's a particular stage in your life and so um i don't necessarily think there is a need to necessarily negate any of it because there's nothing too drastic that i completely disagree with you know there's things i would word completely differently though there's things that i just don't think sounded very good there's things that i think should have been mixed differently there's you know there's all types of stuff but um you're right though you're right overall forging that bond with someone else is like it's something money can't buy it's paramount absolutely it's paramount i think there's there's something there's something very fascinating about that that kind of level of openness and and it's important also remember that like you were a teenager at a, like this mixtape time like you were a teenager still which is like when when we look back to our life now it's like that's very young like like our our son is like just a little bit younger than you were when you were doing these things which is really <laughs> mind blowing mind blowing also to, to me but but hip hop as we know is it can be very there's a lot of machismo this like it can be very you know not just competitive but also like combative it's kind of, this it's got this kind of energy mm-hmm. and 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 especially like um, sometimes uh, for especially for men there's a kind of hypermasculinity that is there so it, it it's really quite something that you were also able at a very young age still to to show vulnerability because i if i'm thinking about myself i mean i'm not particularly like a, a, i wouldn't consider myself hypermasculine but i think that i don't think that i would have had the the courage, courage. To, it takes courage to, you know to to just be uh, admit that or acknowledge that in 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 kind of so many words i think i also must have felt listened to yes um when i opened up emotionally you know i i i i think you're right um it's something i've noticed in almost all of my um friends um Yeah, I must have felt listened to. I must have felt oh, but you know what else I think also had an influence was um Tupac's music. Mm. Yes. So Tupac's music gave me a real green light to sort of 
be you know not mutilate my uh the, the sort of facility the the faculties of communication of you know points on an emotional level of, of of saying i feel sad of saying i felt weak at this you know i really think that that was definitely one of the really good influences that his uh, music had on me and probably on lots of other people too you know even just sort of telling people you love them you know his music was it had that in it you know and um and he was really form you know um, a formative stage Tupac's music was the soundtrack to a lot of stuff but also for me what I think attracted me to his music so much was the passion because he was just so passionate in whatever he was doing um and and you know obviously there was a little bit of a thrill of you know at that age of sort of the curse words he was using in his disses but then in a way that sort of drew me in but then the other stuff sort of really affected me um deeply and that's what other kids are going to be saying about Loki's works like i listened to <laughs> dear listener and Maybe. this is what happened to me it's exactly Maybe. the same thing so there's a place <laughs> for it like you've just yeah. proven right i think that not to get too much into this debate but people always like is it tupac or piggy and and for me i have to say that that while i'm sure that uh, Piggy was a great MC and, and everybody kind of probably acknowledges that. But to me, I think I agree with you. Well, I didn't necessarily talk about this comparison, but, but Tupac had so much passion and, and wherever in the world you go, there's always going to be a graffiti of Tupac. And he's wow. like, a, he's like a Bob Marley of, 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 mm. of hip hop. It's like, he's like a global icon. And, yeah. and, 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 and I think it has got a lot to do with the fact that he dared to be very human. Like in, yeah. in all of it, he was still very human. And, and, and there's something to be said about that. Yeah, and it's that humanhood that people relate to. And, um, and in a way, it's funny. He was a combination of many things, but he wasn't too prideful to show um, all of that and, uh, and bear his soul in that way. And um, you're right. You know, that, that I, I, in a way, I think, because I was so young when I learned some of that stuff, um, I don't seem to have really appreciated that, you know, it, it takes strength. It takes strength to sort of be honest in that way and, and be clear about your sort of your weaknesses, I guess. Yeah. And I've been wondering to myself, of course, you, you were just talking about how at 16 or 17, you were calling in and doing those performances and, and competing. But you came into hip hop quite earlier than that, maybe 12. And I asked myself, so what does a 12 year old or anybody <laughs> at that age, what is it in you that tells you that you have something to say, you would like to be heard? And, you know, you are prepared to get people to pay attention to you. I've seen 12-year-olds. <laughs> We've raised them. And I mm. just don't know. What quality in you or what was the desire? What sparked that interest in you? Well, I think that being the youngest of three children and wanting attention from people, um, but also I think um, mimicking uh, a lot of the stuff that was coming from the United States. So, you know, at 12, I was nowhere near you know, making music about the kind of things that I would later on, I was literally just reproducing what I'd heard from Wu-Tang Clan, Method Man, Red Man, Most Deaf, you know, basically in a sort of fake American accent, as a lot of us were here, unfortunately. Everywhere. Um, we were, we yeah, were like we were. that everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, 
Britain in general, it's got like 105 US military bases. You know, one of the really interesting um, sort of anecdotal stories I find is um, Daniel Imawaha has this uh, book, How to Hide an Empire. And he looks at the development of the Beatles. Now, I'm definitely nowhere near comparing myself to them. (laughs) (laughs) But what I'm saying is that what happened with them was he argues that their proximity to major US bases meant that the the kind of music that the soldiers on these bases, the US soldiers on these bases were passing around was then seeping out of the base into the localities where they lived. And so they got into US music and started mimicking the kind of music that was coming out of the United States at that time and was popular. Obviously, later on, he then, you know, talks about uh, John Lennon funding the Black Panthers um, and the IRA and Paul McCartney at one point speaking out against nuclear weapons. And in a way, I'd kind of look at it as not a completely dissimilar process for me. You know, we were very, very influenced by the United States, um, culturally, particularly. And also, I think now when we have the Internet, we underestimate quite the extent of how singular and and across the board that influence was it was really almost the only window that we looked into uh growing up um because it was it was just so dominant and uh and so an aspect of that you know i i was in a home where you know we had Franz fanon on the bookshelf we had um public enemy on the record player we had gil scott heron there um sam cook um, so I was I was I was very lucky to be exposed, exposed. to you know these kind of things. Um, so I was able to sort of relate to things in a slightly different kind of way. But definitely, I would say that the early stage was literally just reproducing and mimicking what I heard, what I thought was cool, what I thought would make me cool, what I thought would give me attention, validation, um, yeah, validation, all those kind of things, and you know. Without a doubt, going to the open mics and battling, I battled in school, I battled at the open mics, doing all that kind of stuff was still part of that, that, you know, that, that bid to sort of be acknowledged, I guess, by people. But then you realize what this music can do and what you can do with it and what it can be used to do. And you sort of start to change and, and, and realize how you can use it, I would say. It's interesting. Yes, absolutely. It's, it, to me, it's interesting. Now you mentioned about like you were talking about the kind of home that you were growing growing in, and and you could be like this day they talk about this third culture kids. Yeah, like, like you 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 would you got kind of like fit into that description. One of your parents is 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 from Britain, and one of them is from Iraq. My yeah. How how was it? Uh, what kind of a m- mixture of cultures? Like how did how did that form your the person that you became and the identity? Well, I'd say um, my dad's side of the family, um, his father was a coal miner who started working at 11 um, post-World wow. War II Dover. Their experience was harsh, but he chose out of his family members to move to London and uh, you know become part of the Socialist Workers' Party. Um, he was involved in rock against racism and then really through student politics he he you know and and him at the time he was actually um president of the student union 
And then the admin of the university met with students to try and push him out. And my mom was one of the students that they met with. And she went and told him what the admin at the university were trying to do to him. Um, because actually they'd gone into occupation about uh, fees for um, foreign students. And uh, so it's quite interesting that that kind of stuff uh, comes together. I mean, I think at that time, things became sharper with the war on terror in terms of those particular kind of identities. And I think that the challenges that me and my siblings were faced with, with the advent of the war on terror, were sort of different to the ones that they had faced before. So, you know, obviously, you know, my mom had been called um, racist things on the street and, you know, on trains and everything else. But it became structural and, te and, and, and technological in a way that it didn't seem to have been in their time, though, obviously, my perception. You know, the Rock Against Racism were founded because in areas like the one that I lived in, you know, the racists were firebombing people's houses. You had four days of riots on the road that I lived on next to Grenfell Tower in which houses of people from the Caribbean were being, like I say, firebombed and people were being attacked. And that's what led to Notting Hill Carnival, um, which is, you know, a, a celebration of Caribbean culture in London. And so Rock Against Racism was part of the response to stuff like that. You know, my dad was arrested at the Battle of Lewisham. Um, again, you know, a bid to stop the National Front marching through um, Lewisham, you know, this, this area that was full of people from the outer reaches of the British Empire. And so, you know, in terms of the war on terror, what that sort of posed the question for us as, as, as children was... You know, your, the state that you belong to is now assuming a violent posture towards people that you, are like you. And so that it, it's quite, quite a sort of complicated position to find yourself in. You know, obviously, you know, the political party that my dad was a part of is the most, you know, and this is a fact, it's the most infiltrated by uh, spy cops in British history. And this has been proven by the Spy Cops Inquiry, which has found a huge amount of, of British spy cops infiltrating into that organization. And then through the infiltration of that organization, being able to spy on campaigns like the Stephen Lawrence, the Justice for Stephen Lawrence campaign, um, who was murdered by racists um, in this country also. So you've grown up with this kind of political atmosphere um, and then, and then, the war on terror happens and you are now in the eyes of the state potentially far more dangerous than you would have been otherwise you know maybe you would have been a leftist maybe you would have been you know subversive in that way but now all of a sudden you might actually be somebody who who wants to commit an act of political violence and and stuff like the prevent duty you know makes it a legal duty on all public sector workers to spy on kids it allows them to um, have counter-terror police question children without the presence or the knowledge of their parents and that's under the prevent duty um, which is unprecedented powers being put in the hands of the state and so that then 
put us in a quite a sort of difficult position, like I say, you know, because all of us um, had Arabic names, first names. And, you know, the way that I think we've attempted to make sense of that in our different ways has been to try and find methods to grapple with state violence leading to mass death. So, you know, in, in, in my sister's case, it's been more the uh, legal route. So she's not a lawyer, but she works in, in, in law, you know, was involved in one of the most important cases in British history where still surviving victims of the British camps in Kenya, what they call the, you know, the Mau Mau camps, but obviously not everyone in the camps was Mau Mau. Um, she was involved in that case, building that case that, that won compensation for those people. Obviously, there's limitations. You know, you're talking about a 20 million pound payout, but then it got split in many, many ways. So basically, each person is getting about 2,000 pounds. But as a legal precedent, at least it has use in the law to later on be applied, of course. Whereas me, it was more the music kind of thing. Um, and, you know, with music, sky, sky can be the limit. You know, you can reach people in all types of different ways. And I think for me also, it was potentially allowing people from similar kinds of backgrounds, which the society at that time sort of prob seeks to problemize and problematize and basically say, well, you know, you, you, you don't really belong. Well, you say, well, through the music I belong. And, you know, we link arms with others who, who relate to those kind of experiences. But overall for me, um, you know, beyond the sort of navel gazing aspect of the identity where you say, oh, you know, you know, where do I stand? You know, th that has very little use. It has very, very little use. What's actually useful is what you can organize around, what campaigns you can be a part of, what your music can serve to help and how that can then affect the material realities. So I think that, um, you know, that process, walking that process was quite interesting and quite useful. But it's certainly a kind of uh, an interesting position to find yourself in within this sort of historical context, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, what you're saying resonates so, so strongly and so clearly because I grew up in South Africa, apartheid South Africa in the 80s, and there was that same volatile political climate. And we were also subjected to the the, the racism that said you don't belong, you're wrong and everything like that. And what I noticed is that during the, um, all of the people from my generation became quite militant at some point. And I wonder, is that something that can be avoided if you are subjected to that in your younger years, in your formative years, you see the injustice? Does that now bring birth or give birth to the activist or indeed the extremist in a person? I mean, I think for me, um, Grenfell, would have been the most sort of radicalizing thing that happened in my life because, you know, with the reaction of by and large, the Iraqi community um, in this country has not been to get massively sort of politically involved, you know, particularly my generation. A lot of them saw the need for them to get involved in the political process in Iraq because they felt that coming from England, they could, uh, you know, they could be part of it. You know, a lot of them have worked for think tanks, which sort of buttress the war machine a lot of them have worked as sort of translators for the uh, the british army and other things like that so that was never the way that i wanted to go but uh yeah i mean to sort of uh, speak to your question it was it was grenfell that really put me to the point of no return actually because i think at that time in my life there was definitely a space for me to be subsumed into academia and and just work on sort of 
historical studies of things that have very little relevance in the here and now, you know, or limited relevance in the here and now, just sort of studying history in a kind of cold and emotionless way. But with Grenfell, you know, you're talking about, you know, a young man who I knew since he was 14 years old. He was my friend. He died in there with his uh, family. His little brother, who was four years old, went to the same primary school that my son goes to. Um, three generations of one family, I saw them at the window communicating with them. You know, we went through something quite exceptional in, in you know, in the history of, of, of Britain. That was quite an exceptional experience to have. And then seeing the way in which the state rolled down to assure social order and made sure that the, the limitations on what we could do, you know, we became, essentially, it's my belief that the community were more criminalized than the companies that were involved in the refurbishment that caused all of that mass death. Um, were and you know when history speaks it will say that it will say that when the documents become public it will say look this is the extent that the British state went to to calm this situation down and assure, assure social order avoid rioting these are the databases of information which were collected on the people in the area and obviously me being a fairly well-known dissident and subversive you know it, so it intensified surveillance without a doubt um, but also it, it, it was absolutely radicalizing because at that point you're now saying, okay, okay, well, this is not an abstract thing. You know, this is not something that other people in other places are experiencing that I feel I have an affinity with them, that I have solidarity with them. No, no, no. This is my actual neighbors. This is the, 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 the cladding is in my hair. It's on my body. I washed it off my body. Yeah. yeah. So, so after that, you know, there is no coming back. What in in that community? What our awareness of how bad things actually can be are different from a lot of the rest of the country, because a lot of the rest of the country still doesn't really even literally like five hundred meters up the road. That literally, like five hundred meters up the road, people don't you know they have an understanding of but they don't have the same understanding as us who were there on the night who saw it who knew the people that died it's a whole different thing you know and that's the point of no return you know because from then you can't go back to seeing the british state as a benign entity it's just not possible yeah so just to just to clarify we might have a listener so or viewers in many places in the world so Grenfell was and you you're probably you are you are the expert on this but Grenfell was a, a sort of high-rising building like a public housing council house that caught caught on fire because of some because and and people got stuck there and and it was a terrible 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 tragedy and and there was a situation where some of the cladding that was used in the building was such flammable. that yes flammable Yes, it was polyethylene. So. Yeah, it was polyethylene, and the regulatory system had been worn down to such an extent that people can basically put whatever they want in buildings now when it comes to flammability, and 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 basically get away with it. And so it's you know it's a, a disaster waiting to happen across the country. You've got hospitals, schools, hotels, cinemas that have the same kind of stuff on it. You have less than a mile away from Grenfell a primary school which has been built with flammable insulation made by one of the same companies that put flammable insulation on growth. And this is, this is literally right next door to you. Like you yeah. are, yeah. 
so this is on your street yeah, yeah. that i can i can imagine i can imagine that is certainly that is certainly something that would have a have a, have a great impact I wanted to uh, touch a little bit uh, about still that um, that the side of the having the uh, the Arabic background. Also, are you connected with the Arabic hip hop from the what we call Middle East or North Africa, or are you part of? Do you feel like you're part of that kind of community as well? What kind of affinities do you have? Um, yeah, I follow it. I follow it um, not very deeply. Um, I know quite a few great artists um, from there. You know, I think one of the difficult things about hip hop in Arabic is in the wider society, often it is associated as quite a crude mimicking of the United States and a kind of sort of cultural colonialism, cultural imperialism. But actually, a lot of the artists do go to quite great lengths to um, forge a line of connection from early, either, even pre-Islamic Arabic poetry and hip hop today go off of you know people like Anutanebi people like Jawahari people like Khensa you know these kind of poets who had real cultural impact you know a long long time before hip hop existed and they and they sort of forged that connection so it's not just simply something that you know happened in the Bronx in the 80s and then came to the Middle East a lot of these uh, young people doing it are connecting it to the uh, deeper history of the Arabic language Um, I would I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a part of that community because you know my primary um, public language is English. Um, I speak Arabic at home. I listen to Arabic music, but not as much as I listen to English music. I probably fo- follow more Arabic news than I follow English news. Um, so it's a sort of interesting position to be. But I wouldn't very clearly sort of demarcate myself as being part of. Uh, that wider Arabic hip hop community, because really, you know, the people who were my peers growing up are, you know, people like Rich 32 or Carla and, you know, people that are very much in that space of the English language. Absolutely. Sure. And uh, there's some interesting people also that you have been, um, you've been, you've been working with. I mean, some people might know people like Doc Brown, who since have become like a, like a big kind of comedian, done a lot of, lot of, like films and and a lot of comedy in general stand up and and mu- music based comedy and that and you guys were in the same group in Poisonous yeah. Poets uh, where also was uh, Reveal who is uh, I think he's an academic with the Iranian hip hop I've I've seen some lecture online uh, that he's talking about so there's there's uh, London is a quite a place where you have very eclectic mix of 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 people all sorts of people doing and living in that culture that exists there Absolutely. I mean, London is one of those places. It's like a mosaic, and and the channels of communication that people have branch all over the world. So you can very much live in an Iraqi or Moroccan or a Lebanese or an Iranian community, maybe less Iranian community here, um, quite effectively. You know, handling most of your 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 business in in other languages. So it's beautiful and great in that way. And yeah, Poisonous Poets, you know, the the ironic thing, obviously, about the connection with Poisonous Poets is when I first came to the open mic, Doc Brown hosted the open mic and he said to me, oh, uh, the, 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 the other low, you know, low key, that's someone else's name, he's here. And so I just go up in the open mic and start rapping and saying my name's low key. And then the other guy comes in and Doc <laughs> Brown says, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the real low key. <laughs> At which point I being you know, the obnoxious uh, young boy that I was said, okay, let's battle for the name. 
you know, this mm. this this poor guy is just going about his business doing his night and you know, we battle, <laughs> I win, and then from then on I use the name. Um and, and then Doc Brown actually asked me to join Poisonous Poets. Um or brought me to meet Reveal and, and through Reveal join Poisonous Poets. And yeah, I mean, what an amazing collective of uh, of artists Poisonous Poets are and were. The UK music, I think now, since that, it has kind of like the, 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 the black music, the carriage, the, 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 what became crime and, and, and all that stuff. It has become quite well known globally. And you have like now this artist like Stormzy and whoever. But at the time, like this is a very recent development at the time that we are talking about here that was still kind of like on the come up that wasn't yet that hadn't yet happened how much has the uk the music scene that where you find yourself in how much has that changed even during your musical career oh i mean massively you know mm-hmm. this time that we're talking about the choice fm the deal real the hip-hop connection you know it was probably in tens of thousands maximum of people that would know any of this stuff was happening um Then when the internet from MySpace to Facebook to YouTube came into it, the ability to reach possibly millions of people um, kind of opened up. And, you know, I could never at that point, I could never have dreamed of, you know, making a song like Terrorist or Long Live Palestine or Abomination and these songs being heard by millions of people um, around the world, especially without any involvement from any major record company. You know, it's just a dream come true, you know, and much less to be able to tour these songs and people know the songs, you know, such such a blessing. I'd like to ask in terms of what you've just said, this being able to reach millions of people, doesn't that place a huge responsibility on you as an artist? And how do you interact? How do you relate to that? Do you feel like you do have a responsibility to the people you are connecting to or speaking to? Well, I think now... The only place that I have any hope really of reaching millions of people now because of the algorithms is Twitter. So I can put out tweets that will have in terms of impressions, maybe a million, two million. YouTube is just not distributing my music to that extent now. Um, Spotify, there's space. Absolutely. I'm not denying there's space, but it's still uh, limited in terms of those numbers. Instagram, you can kind of get okay kind of levels of interaction. Facebook is just a non-starter for me now. Um, so I do, to some extent, think there is a uh, you know responsibility. If that many people are listening to you, yeah. you, know, you don't want to be putting ideas in their head which are harmful to them. Um, but also you want to be putting stuff into their, 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 their consciousness which is of use and of interest to them. You, you want to give them stuff that you feel they need to know value adding stuff yes yeah for sure for sure it, well i guess i mean and this is the, maybe maybe these are not really so different things because you're 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 one person but perhaps initially you were like like you were artist x amount of uh, um, percentage of artist and then activist of another how, how much is that kind of relation like uh, changed in 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 from your younger years because now it feels like the activism is quite a big part you have your podcast you do a lot of stuff uh, and you're, you're very sort of important political commentator uh, in, in in uk and beyond in, in a lot of this kind of topics i mean yeah. I, w- i would say probably i'm more a journalist now um than i am other things i mean i tour um quite a lot in the year which is great um but mainly that's off the music that 
had that level of audibility 10 years ago where you were able to get, you know, an album released independently, 33 in the midweek charts, you know, that was completely unheard of then um, for independent hip hop. You know, you had one or two, literally one or two signed hip hop artists charting at that time. And so that album has allowed me to be able to tour in the way that I do. And that's great. Um, and I love that. And I enjoy that massively. But I do feel that that kind of algorithmic um, limitation, which is put on the music now, means that you kind of have to start thinking about new, potentially new business models in terms of getting your music out there. You know, you could, for example, one could start a Patreon at which they have even 2,000 listeners. But if those 2,000 listeners, you're putting out a couple songs a month, are paying a certain amount of money every month, mm. then you have a more kind of reliable. And, you know, basically, I guess the lesson of sort of my experience with the music and, and these times has been constant adaptation to the circumstances to continue doing what you want to do, to continue making a living, which allows you to do what you want to do. And so, and so that is, you know, really been the story of how things are. And, and, you know, the the model of being able to throw your music at millions and then thousands buying it is very much the major label model and that's you know how you had you know the youtube thing and now they're able to sort of inundate their youtube videos with millions of views which then leads to revenue from the advertising so basically you know you're a conduit for me selling your information to coca-cola so coca-cola can better advertise to you and then coca-cola pays me basically you know back then 10 years ago we were selling like you said the cd in someone's hand or we were selling it through itunes where the person was paying for the download we weren't selling your information to another company whereas now that's basically the way it functions through youtube and through spotify unfortunately um, it's data mining, you know, I'm, I'm facilitating, I'm a conduit of that data mining process now. So yeah, I think it's about being inventive in new ways that you can uh, kind of make a living off of this now. And, you know, I've been fortunate and privileged to be at that particular part of the sort of story of how the music industry has developed. It's really remarkable, like when you think about like from those, you know, CDRs or whatever, you know, like you have your mixtapes and you press them and then you get, then you, you're selling them and then from MySpace and, and YouTube and then all of a sudden like algorithms and it like really everything has changed during your career, which is not like, you're not, you're not like, <laughs> not you know, that. you're not, a, old. you know, <laughs> as in your 70s, this, this is not like, this is still like a limited amount of time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I wanted to ask before, because I'm looking at the time and I realized that we could talk forever and we don't have forever. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the um, hiatus you took to go yeah. off the scene. What yeah. inspired that and where did you go? Well, I think I wasn't completely ready, actually, for the, the, the at that time, the level of, you know, on modest success that I had. I, I wasn't really ready um, for it. Um, and what I wanted to do was have the time to study properly to, you know, so I, I got a qualification as an English teacher. I got a qualification as a personal trainer. Um, I worked as a translator in Calais 
on uh, three successful cases in bringing people to the UK under the Dubs Amendment of EU law when Britain were part of the EU. And that was good. Um, I spent a long time in Palestine also. But then I sort of came to the conclusion that, look, these are things you feel passionate about. You're seeing, you know, in the people that you're teaching and in the people that you're working alongside. And you're seeing these problems you can only reach a certain amount of people in day-to-day communication, you know, in the sort of tens or hundreds at best, you have this platform as a sort of character, which is low key. You don't understand what you have and you need to take advantage of that. And so that's when I sort of made the decision to make the song Ahmed, you know, one of the sort of parts of that is I was working a lot on the, um, the the stuff with people seeking refuge in 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 England and one of the things that I went to was a demonstration in Dover um, against the major um, anti-migrant push happening there and of course as I said Dover is a place where a lot of the English side of my family are from but the level of you know racism that I saw and and speaking to some local people about the situation I thought wow you know the same kind of time of that we were seeing as we have seen since and as we saw before then you know people drowning in the mediterranean people yeah. washing up um on the uh, on the on the beaches and and i thought how can i reach people and try to fight back against this and the best way that i could was to make the song ahmed and and at that time we did it and it was you know we, we were fortunate in terms of the algorithms because, you know, it, it reached a lot of people. And, um, and so, yeah, so that was what kind of pushed me to come back. I mean, also, I got a master's um, in, uh, in Middle Eastern studies as well during that period. Was, you know, I was very busy um, during the period. And I was also thinking of music. But after that, I started to see the cultural function of my music rather than just seeing it as something all about me. I saw it as actually about the sort of collective and the society and how I can sort of play a role in society. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's, that's really like, that's really amazing. We've been, uh, I, like, like I was saying earlier, I mean, I, I've been listening to music for, for a long time, almost as long as it has been available. Wow. And, uh, and, and, you know, you came in during the dear listener time. I and, and so <laughs> it, it, it has been, it has been a meaningful, uh, it has been really meaningful, um, music in many ways because, because your music is, is very, uh, meaningful and it has a lot of and substance. We've been playing, we've been playing your music for so long on PEPR. So for Thank us, so it's much. like this day was always going to happen. It was always going to wow. come and there would not be enough time to cover all the questions that we'd like to <laughs> to ask but we hope that we're gonna get a chance another time to speak absolutely to you. it'd be brilliant it's been yeah. so I'd great to have you here thank, thank you, you so much both really appreciate it this has been planet earth planet drop production pepr the virtual world talk conversation series we are powered by rapstation.com and rstv app which you can find and download from www.rstvapp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at PEPR Radio.